Okay, time, time to resume. Time to resume for the last uh, but not least session of the day. Um, welcome back. Uh, delighted to, to have you uh, for this session on the first day of this two days conference. And um, uh, we are very, very fortunate to have with us uh, Adam Tooth here today. Um, Adam needs no introduction, but let me try all the same. Um, his reputation, of course, precedes him. He is uh, both a historian and an economist, which I think gives a, gives a particular perspective. Um, professor at Columbia University, the Kathleen and Selby Colum Davis Professor of History and the Director of the European Institute at Columbia. Um, Adam has very kindly to agree to give a keynote speech. Uh, we are very fortunate and he will take us really 11 feet up to take the very ambitious topic of the international economic order in an age of a polycrisis. And knowing that Adam has actually coined the term uh, polycrisis, we really look forward to hearing from him. Um, in terms of format, we'll have about 30 minutes or so presentation, followed by Q&A. So please stay tuned and uh, prepare questions so we can have a, what I'm sure will be a very lively um, and, uh, and exciting and perhaps even controversial uh, debate. So Adam, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you so much. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. I apologize for dropping in in the middle of the afternoon. I've actually just been across the road in the hotel. Uh, it's, a, it's a teaching day in Columbia in New York, so I've been Zoom teaching and, and uh, mercifully the time difference lines up and I'm between seminars right now. So it's a real, it's a real, real pleasure to be here. I, I also come with a degree of diffidence because I am very far from, no one's ever gonna confuse me with being a, an expert in development economics, but I, I find the dialogue between you know, the general effort to locate our moment in global political economy and the development community is it's a silo that's very, these silos need crossing and it's a privilege to engage in that effort with you this afternoon. I have been able to listen to some of the conversations this morning and I gather I'm being kind of used as a hinge between the more technical finance ministry fiscal stuff today and, and some other issues tomorrow, so I'm very happy to play that role. Um, forgive me if, if, if some of this is a little higher than 11 feet. I think I'd be like 11,000 might be closer to the mark. Um, I'm very happy to, to bring things down to earth in the q and I, I, I had the benefit as a, as a keynoter of being given a very clear agenda, very clear instructions from ODI on, on what you would like me to talk about. It's extraordinarily helpful. And this is the six point list of issues that, <laughs> that, that it would be great. To, I, I mean it, this is, this is great. So what is a polycrisis? How does it affect the global south? Uh, how do you view the relations between US and China in shaping the international order? Uh, are there comparisons to be made between current reform efforts and those of the 1970s? Uh, what should policy be? Um, and, and then what should a Labour government do? I, I, I can approach these questions in sort of descending order of expertise. So I feel relatively confident at the top and increasingly out of my depth at the bottom. And so I'm gonna kind of halt halfway through and then we'll turn to Q&A. And, and uh, what is a polycrisis? I mean, I picked up the term from Jean-Claude Juncker almost as a kind of willful act of kind of intellectual provocation uh, to cite the president of the European Commission as the, the source of a big idea was seemed like a, a kind of a thing to do. He himself took it from Edgar Morin, a French theorist of, of complexity, who, who had coined it in the late 1990s. I think, it, I think it means essentially three things. It's characterizing the world in terms of a diversity of shocks, ecological, economic, political, geopolitical. 
and and insisting on the heterogeneity of these i sometimes liken it to the experience of going to a particularly badly sorted breakfast buffet where like every conceivable option is available you can see people piling up you know the the chinese buns and the american bacon and the american you know the so polycrisis has this kind of heterogeneous feel and it breaks our norms about what crises should look like we're confronted with combinations it, any such any sense of a heterogeneity is after all based on an underlying assumption of norms which is being challenged and one of the things that's happening is that economic and economic non-economic factors are being mixed together and then being mixed all the way down right at every single level i mean if you're trying to diagnose the current inflation problem you end up starting with an epidemic or a pandemic even like and that's that's what I take to be characteristic of the polycrisis moment. Um, you could ask, I'm a historian, I'm labeled as a historian. So the obvious question I always get is, you know, are, is a coincidence of multiple crises like this really a new phenomenon? And of course, the answer is no. Every revolutionary moment at some level has been characterized by this. But Chris Clark's great book on 1848 that's just come out literally ends with a claim that the 19th century, the mid 19th century saw something like a polycrisis out of which emerged after all. The, the theory of Marxism, but you could also think of the interwar period about which I've written as a moment of polycrisis, where you have coming together economic and international relations forces, the disruption of political norms. I think it's clear that any crisis like that is overdetermined in that sense, but I don't think we should be shy. I think we should insist, that, or the race, we, well, I think we should regard these kind of comments not necessarily as helpful in the sense that I feel that they're a little defensive. They're warding off what I think is a more awesome reality, which is the possibility that the current moment is unprecedented, truly is unprecedented. And, and this wisdom, and I feel the role of a historian here is quite ambiguous, because on the one hand, the historian could be reminding us always that we've seen this before. But I think at some point, you've also got to say that, no, actually, we haven't. Like the Cold War had created destruction of economic growth, disrupted technological change, mounting geopolitical crisis, political conflict, it had all of those things. But we do need, I think, to encompass the fact that there has never, ever, literally never, ever in history been a state as large and as powerful as the current Chinese state, ever. In the history of our species, has 1.4 billion people all been organized at the level that China is. No state of that size has risen as fast as China has in the last generation. And no rising power has ever faced an antagonist as formidable as the United States as uh, globally established and as convinced of its own exceptional mission in history as the United States, even in its current attenuated form is. That I think is a novel configuration. We shouldn't confuse that with other moments. Nor have we ever faced a reality in which we are up against, our noses are being forced into, literally if we're willing to as it face the reality, of the imminence of real environmental crisis on a global scale as a lived reality. And there's a way in which I think we constantly repress this, the way in which, for instance, the COVID crisis and policy responses to the COVID crisis have been normalized as instances of dramatic fiscal policy action. Whereas what we were actually dealing with with this, this is the daily plotting of global GDP by Goldman Sachs in 2020. That's a 20%, 20% collapse in global GDP, not over a matter of years, which is what happened between 1929 and 1932, but a matter of weeks. A 20% fall in global GDP. We literally in the annals of economic history have never seen anything like this or had to map it like this before or had the capacity to map it. Now one could quibble about indicators like this, but they seem to me to graphically capture a kind of volatility on a scale that we just have never seen before. We've never attempted simultaneously to furlough a very large percentage of the global workforce running into the billions at the same moment. There's nothing, nothing been like, there's never, never been anything like this before. And of course, to an extent, the polycrisis is also the experience of kind of a virtual reality, right? 
But that in itself is significant. Modernity generates, habitually, systematically produces forward-looking visions. That's one of the things we've learned to do with social science since the 18th century. And those forward indicators for us right now allow us to draw maps like this, which tell us that by 2070, that black band across the middle of our planet will become largely uninhabitable. Now, that may transpire or not, and we may devise mechanisms for living with it, but we have never collectively faced a future like that before. That too strikes me as qualifying the current moment as novel. Nor have we been in a situation where at the level, if you like, almost of sort of philosophy of history, we have had to reckon with facts like this, that Earth scientists genuinely believe that the planet may have been shifted off its axis by the scale of human activity. Like this, isn't, this is not in the run of mill of previous human activity. And the, furthermore, it's not just a, something that's happening. We have an acute consciousness of it. In other words, we can't evade the responsibility. Right? It's, not just for its, it's not just in itself, it's for itself. It's moved into the realm of a kind of collective cultural reckoning with the scale of our, of our, of our impact. Now, for some, the realization of this is an implication that we basically need to do more and more complicated uh, planning, we need to do more and more complicated modeling, we need to expand our models to incorporate a wider variety of range. Of, and I think that's absolutely, God help us, we need that, right? That's our only hope. We need to do more sophisticated technocratic planning for sure. But for me, as somebody coming from the humanities who doesn't bear the responsibility of policymaking, um, the other thing I need to, we need to reckon with is, and I think it's the, the role for folks like myself in that privileged position, is also to kind of continuously remind ourselves of the kind of cognitive shock that this implies, the scale of the uncertainty that's being generated. And I don't just say this for myself, who am I after all, but you know, take Larry Summers, surely the most confident of the exponents of the, of the 1990s, and he and Martin Wolf went to lunch and they ended up talking about the polycrisis. And as Larry says, he and I disagree about very many things, but the polycrisis term strikes him as a useful one for describing what, in his modest estimation of his 50 years of tracking world affairs, is not the most dangerous necessarily. Polycrisis is not an imminent, not a prediction of imminent disaster. It's not a Malthusian nightmare. It's simply saying we're going to have to run faster to keep up intellectually in policy terms, maybe even emotionally, with the pace of change and with the scale of change. And what he's saying is he's never felt more confused. I think that is a rather telling indicator of the state they're in. You could ask at this point whether this isn't a reworking of one of those fashion, one of the fashion memes of the 2008 financial crisis. Many of you will remember the books that came out afterwards. Oh, look, a huge financial crisis happened. Well, that probably reminds us of the fact that, as Keynes very wisely said 100 years ago, there are things which are fundamentally uncertain to which we cannot attach probabilities. And so there was this sort of reassertion of the epistemic modesty implied by this recognition that our ability to calculate probabilities was limited, and so we needed to reckon with something that that uh, that is called radical uncertainty and that gets kind of to the outcome I do think we are facing a kind of radical uncertainty but whenever I invoke this Keynesian this Keynesian piece of wisdom I always have this kind of worry like, I mean is it really true that the world is difficult to calculate as an almost metaphysical proposition is this a philosophical truth that we discover or is this ultimately a political political fact about the world this is where my kind of leftism and my inheritance of the Marxist tradition comes from I mean the capitalist world is unpredictable, but that's not because the world per se has to be unpredictable, it's because of the way we've built it. Um, if you take Keynes's example, the sense in which I'm using the term is that in which the prospect of a European war is uncertain. There's no scientific basis to form any calculable probability. Well, that's setting a very high bar. Might we just be able to make some kind of reasonable claim about whether war is more or less likely? Well, if we can't do that, it might be to do with the fact that we just don't have a security architecture, right? That makes war less calculable, right? 
So in a sense, the question is, is this more political or philosophical? I'm really inspired by, I really recommend this essay to, to everyone interested in this pro problem by my friend Natasha Leonard, um, who teaches in, in, in New York on the Verso website about the politics of the attribution of certainty and uncertain and uncertainty in the current moment, because I think this metaphysical move of the Keynesian type is a cop out. The problem with 2008 financial crisis was not that there is irreducible radical uncertainty in the world. It's very, very bad bank regulation and, and extremely dangerous strategies by highly leveraged players in a market based financial system. That enormously increases the range of uncertainty. If you have, you know, Lehman repo funded to the tune of 600 billion a night. You've got some uncertainty in the system, but it's not a metaphysical proposition. So polycrisis, for me, describes the production through the radical process of development itself of an expanding zone of new unknowns. So radical uncertainty is not simply a given, it's produced. It's a, it's a radicalization of modernity that, that we're actually facing. Mark, Mark Blythe, my friend Brown, puts it brilliantly in an article in The Guardian uh, uh, two years ago. He, as he describes it here, climate breakdown, of course, induced by human uh, economic development, is a giant non-linear outcome generator with wicked, wicked convexities in plain English. There's no mean, there's no average, there's no return to normal. It's one-way traffic into the unknown. So this is produced un, uh, uh, uncertainty. It's not a given, it's not a fact about the world. This is what I think the polycrisis term is trying to capture. So what are the implications for the global south? Who will take, uh, how will the polycrisis affect uh, the prospects of development going forward. So when I was invited to when I was invited to to Wiser at Wits in in South Africa earlier this year, Keith Breckenridge, my my friend there, the great historian of data and personal identification, said, "Adam, literally as I arrived in the airport, he said, Adam, I like this polycrisis concept, but hasn't Africa been in polycrisis for the last half century? <laughs> uh, like, isn't this a radically Eurocentric conception that you know suddenly we've entered this phase?" But you can obviously see what he means, right? The failure of industrialization between the 70s and the 90s, the Cold War, the spilling over to Africa with massive force, HIV AIDS, the first pandemic of the modern era, so often written out of those stories, right? Because not transmitted by air, but sexually transmitted, and because Africa is just outside the imaginary we think of pandemics coming from, from Asia. And then, of course, the, the, the breakout the radical Islam in East Africa, notably in, in uh, uh, Somalia and Sudan in, in 89 and 91. But you can, you can see wh where we're coming from here. I, I buy that. Um, but I think the first point to say is that the polycrisis, the idea is, is not challenging us to sort of decide whether the present is better or worse, or whether we're on a narrative of, uh, you know, progress or decline, the kind of Afro-pessimism, Afro-optimism kind of story. Um, but it's really asking us about novelty, right? And within the drama of Africa's development over the last half century, as dramatic as that first phase is, I would want to insist, not that things have gotten better or worse, but that things have added complexity and become more dramatic over time. In other words, the African crisis itself has an internal history, which is extremely dynamic and constantly changing. It's not just one thing. You could say, I think, maybe the appropriate claim is that Africa first enters polycrisis and now finds, as it were, the rest of the world catching up with it and, and, and uh, sucking it uh, into further spirals. But we shouldn't, I think, we should, for you know, all of the desire to shrink away from neo-Malthusian pessimism, we have to reckon, surely, with the world historic drama 
of, on the one hand, Africa's population growth, which is a world historic innovation, right? The recovery of Africa's population from the impact of slavery is unlike the recovery of Asia, which was always densely populated, right? This is a new phenomenon. A relatively densely populated African continent is a new thing in world history. The combination of that with the escalating environmental breakdown, which is captured so well by this map, and many of the places in the black zone there have the highest population growth rates in the world, right? That is a novel configuration even in the last half century story of, of, of Africa's development. That's the first point to make. The second point to make is that, is that the conditions under which the Global South, and I'm just using Africa here as a placeholder for that, the Global South has to face the future and its development are of course radically changed by the external, the shifting into external environment. In other words, Asia's emergence changes the conditions and notably China's, East Asia's emergence changes the conditions for everywhere else, including of course, India. And then I think there's another phenomenon that we have to deal with, which is, as it were, a historicity element, a, 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 a story internal to the development of this drama, which is that at some point we begin to have to reckon with the iterative nature of the development, disappointment, restart, development, disappointment cycle. I, I was really struck by this talking to South African colleagues or people in Argentina, friends in Argentina as well, where the message is, you know, it's worse this time because we no longer believe, right? Because we are going through successive cycles and each time there is a reboot and each time you make this move, this exhausts its credibility. Now in societies with really dramatically young populations, this effect is less extreme. But in both South Africa and Argentina, I, I, felt, I felt this very powerfully, the, the way in which a polycrisis, even if you can think of it extended, changes shape as the, as, the, as the experience of this relentless permacrisis digs itself deeper into the world. And, and this is a theme that I want to harp on in the last half of what I'm going to say today, which because I think to a degree it affects the West, the global North as well. There is a sense in which facing this crisis and one of the dramas of facing this crisis is a kind of crisis of credibility, you might call it, if you're coming from the economic side. How credible is the commitment that we're actually now going to mobilize on the scale that we need? And how exhausted are we by repeated failures to meet that promise? And I think this is something that no doubt speaks to folks in Britain. Um, uh, more consequentially, on a historical scale, it speaks to people in the United States very powerfully, the sense of, oh, again, like, are we really going to iterate? Do we, is that what we have to do? And that, as it bites its way in, becomes a dramatic force. I don't want to, I don't want to end this segment, though, on a negative note, because I think the polycrisis, and notably the most obvious answer to the polycrisis from the climate size, the energy transition, is a, is a narrative of a very different type. Because I think the energy transition is really, seems to me, at least in rhetorical and political terms, to be a huge gift to the development project as such. Because it doesn't have that exhausted feel. It doesn't have the sense of another restart, another cycle of mobilization, expectation and disappointment. It has the effect of connecting in a common problem, both the very rich and the very poor. It focuses on investment, innovation and just attention on an issue which is absolutely essential for the poorest. In other words, how do we get more energy to more people? Um, it is not so high-tech as to be exclusive, like, um, you know, smartphone production. It, it's not obvious you can do it in Arizona. Like, it's not obvious you can do it anywhere outside of Taiwan at the, at the most, it's like, that's like wine growing. Uh, 
chip uh, 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 solar wind solar and wind don't seem to have that kind of logic they seem more extendable it clearly requires large-scale employment uh, if not in the operation of the facilities then in the construction and the rolling out and it redistributes the cards and it redistributes the cards as we can see from any map of solar and, and, and wind potential in a really dramatic way now nothing positive is given by this there is no determinacy here everything depends on politics and how this opportunity is exploited or not exploited but it changes the game in a really positive way and I think that it, it, against the backdrop of that disillusionment, which I think is increasingly a big problem, um, that's very promising and has to be seized on as a huge opportunity for those people of good faith and huge resilience and patience who are grinding at the problem, the boring of hard boards of global development. This is a gift because this is a, it's a redefinition of the problem. You can see the way people's in Brussels, in Berlin, people's sense of geography is expanding. All of a sudden, North Africa becomes a strategic zone, not just a problem from which migrants come. The, 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 the shift in, these are, this is soft tissue stuff. And of course, it involves an instrumentalization more often than not of the global south for various purposes, but it's a claim on relevance that is really novel. Um, and, 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 and I think is a, is a huge opportunity. In other words, uh, the, the, the poly crisis, again, to go back to this theme, doesn't seem to me fate, right? It's not, it's not doom. It's a series of high stakes political wages and gambles. And this is a, this is a tactical opportunity to exploit uh, with strategic implications. The, the next question that was asked is, uh, how do you view the changing economic strategies and relations between the US and China? And these are obviously directly related to the geopolitics of the energy transition. There are folks in Africa, sorry, there are folks in, sorry, there are folks in Washington, DC, who finally care about the, 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 the location of strategic raw materials all over the world, in Latin America uh, and elsewhere, in a way that they never did before. But the, the three things I really, um, if I'm shy about my credentials in talking to an audience like this about development problems, there are three things which, somewhat to my surprise, I have found myself uh, exposed to on the American side, which I do think are really, are really worth bringing to an audience like this, as a way perhaps of sort of helping you to shape expectations about next year, America's prospects and so on, parametric to the central things that you're thinking about. And this is what I want to, I, I'm not gonna talk about China because it's so opaque and even the Chinese experts that I know and speak to regularly have huge difficulty actually gauging what's going on there. Maybe there are folks in this room who have other connections that make that work. On the American side, the astonishing thing is how leaky the apparatus currently is, how quickly sense, a sense of crisis is communicated to the outside. Uh, and how uh, and how openly that sense of crisis is communicated to the outside and some of its instrumental communication of course but some of it is actually kind of unfiltered and the most dramatic thing really stomach churning um from earlier this year was the sense that we have just lived through in the last well in the first half of this year we lived through the first genuine full-on war scare of the new cold war and i mean that and i can't emphasize this strongly enough in an audience like this very serious men and women in Washington, D.C. in the first four to five months of this year were bracing for the possibility of military confrontation with China in 2025. Explicitly and on that timetable from the very highest level and uninhibitedly communicating with journalists in the Beltway and beyond about the nature of those conversations. And I put Ed Luce up here because Ed Luce is somebody who is directly tapped in. So when you read him in the Financial Times and he publishes an article like this, it's because he's spoken to Millie, Chief of Joint Staff, uh, uh, staff or Ed Sullivan, uh, 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 not Ed Sullivan, uh, 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 Jake Sullivan, 
right? It, it's because this sort of uh, messaging that you're seeing here is coming directly from inside the Beltway to the extent that this kind of piece produces then a summons to the White House for explanation and further comment. So there are ways in which people, folks outside the system can, as it were, track what's going on, um, but only indirectly, but nevertheless in quite a vivid form. And, and the, the reality is, and it's really sort of shocking, I, never, I don't think I've ever been quite as scared as, a, as after a, a meeting with um, highly placed people in the National Security Council um and uh, the, the 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 reality of military preparation for confrontation over taiwan was absolutely real and on a time horizon of 18 months that so that's that's a kind of framing parameter the the, the next framing parameter of which you should have in mind when you think about medium-term global prospects <laughs> is that is that the american political system is broken in fundamental ways which the last two or three years have papered over because of the unexpectedly good midterm results and uh, Biden's narrow victory in, in 2020. Um, but the extent of the damage um, is, is, is spectacular, it's ongoing, and it will resurge to the top of the global headlines next year. But it should be in everyone's mindset, everyone's calculative set, all of your tail risks should include the possibility of a really dramatic political development in the United States. Um, right now, the House Republicans are calling for a 45% cut to the USAID budget. Now, they do this ritually, but this is an arping of the ante from a previous demand for a cut of 25 to 30%. And it's unclear to what extent the Republican leadership in Congress any longer fully has control over their caucus. The risks of a government shutdown in the United States at any given moment are real. And this is one of the political footballs that they play with. And the depth, and you might think this is just a kind of the depth of, of, of political dysfunction here. But, so let's make it personal and let's bring it down. And these are data from the FT, which many of you will see, but it's worth just lingering over their meaning. By the metric of vaccine resistance, the American Republican Party is by far and away the most radical of all of the populist parties in the Western world by the metric of vaccine resistance. There are the AFD, the French right wing, and there are the Republican Party on the, on the left-hand side there. The Republicans are literally dying for their beliefs. This is COVID mortality by party affiliation in the United States. That's tens of thousands of people dying in the Republican camp on the, ground, on, on the grounds of their affiliation. So this 45% cut to the USAID budget, it's political theater, but it's political theater from people who have truly extraordinary views of the world which they translate into action right so just as there's some sort of way in because i think because of the covid restrictions few europeans were actually directly exposed to the political drama of 2020 I've never in my life lived through anything as dramatic or unsettling it was just completely unclear whether the republicans were going to recognize the arithmetic outcome of the election just fully unclear whether that was going to happen and if you ever ask yourself why biden had to be the candidate because now they're going to run him even though he's clearly at some point going to be incapable of doing the job the alternative was sanders and if sanders had been the candidate it's very unclear i think how the political forces in the united states would have arranged themselves a whether he could have won against trump and b if he had whether the configuration of forces around him would have ensured that the transition of power happened in any other country in the world anyway we would be asking this question and that is the reality that we're going into in the United States next year. This is the polling as of today. And as you can see in the majority of polls, Trump handily beats Biden, handily beats Biden. In fact, any Republican candidate, Haley in particular, crushes Biden systematically in this polling. 
So not only are these extreme views out there, not only are these extreme views like fundamentally damaging to the American constitutional apparatus, it's very unclear how a Trump presidency, for instance, would deal with the military command chain, given their experience at the hands of the American soldiers uh, in 2020. Um, and the polling suggests right now that it's going to be at the very least an absolutely nail-biting year next year. So that is what to brace for. I'm not predicting the outcome. I'm not crazy. But the, but the, but the, but the reality is we're going to live through extraordinarily uncertain times. And that, for this community, has huge consequences because it constrains all of the economic policy making. You have to understand what Sullivan and Bauschi and Yellen and all of the heroes of Biden economics are doing as part of a Democratic Party elite strategy to give themselves the courage to go into this system because they know that everything is at stake. Right? They are at least profoundly convinced that the entire future of the American Republic is at stake in this project. And that is crucial to understand. So the IRA, for instance, which is celebrated as a historic policy initiative and is the largest in US history, this is the Inflation Reduction Act, the big green industrial policy program, was in fact an absolutely nail-biting last-minute congressional deal with the nerves of large parts of the congressional staff breaking down in the first two weeks of July, people were crying in the corridors of power. It was literally, and then finally a deal between Manchin and Schumer is done. The White House had virtually no input into the political process because it was simply too dangerous for Biden's reputation. So people refer to this as Biden's policy. That's a triumph of Biden's spin doctoring after the fact. It's a re-assimilation of a program that was largely done at the, in Congress. Um, it's far smaller in scale than the hype would suggest, and it relies on the fuzzy, the, the fuzzy math of public-private blended finance multipliers to get itself to the two to three trillion dollar scale. And again and again and again, you have to remind yourself to divide by ten because this is a ten-year program. So it's a fraction of one percent of American GDP that's actually been mobilized here. And according to European internal estimates, the running subsidies offered in the Netherlands, for instance, for green energy programs are eight times those available through the IRA. Now, there's a huge amount that's attractive about the IRA. It's very easy to access. The money's quick. There's very little paperwork. But you have to understand it as part of this effort by the Biden team to do something, to act into history at this moment when they absolutely have to. If you go beyond this, it's quite clear that the United States has zero trade policy options. They simply can't table it. They have very limited development policy options. I'll show you a slide on that in just a second. They have really a serious problem of trust and credibility in Latin America, despite their interventions or rather their efforts to stabilize the transition in Brazil. They got zero love for this and are extremely upset about it. Biden is boxed in on Haiti, given his own previous position, which is the development crisis on America's doorstep, which ought to be, you think, an absolute priority of American policy and just never breaks the surface. You'll see it's in the order of a couple of hundred million dollars in the USAID appropriation. Central America, which is the, which is the driver of the immigration crisis, which sits on American's doorstep, was handed out to Kamala Harris, uh, which gives you a sense of what the priority is, and she wants nothing to do with it. The result is that immigration policy is being increasingly securitized. There are large parts of the congressional GOP which actively discuss bombing Mexico with a view to eliminating the drug cartels they blame for the, they blame for the, they blame for the destabilization. Now, of course, they're not going to do that. But the Parliament of the United States includes people who actively discuss military intervention in Mexico. This is part of the reality. Geopolitics emerges as the lowest common denominator of this political system. On China, the administration does have congressional backing, but what we've seen since that panic earlier in the year 
when the Biden administration insiders realized that they were becoming dangerously close to actually triggering war is this pullback. And the central theme of the pullback has been de-risking rather than uncoupling, adopting the European term. And then this phrase, small yard, high fence, which is how they justify massively aggressive strategy on tech with a view then to saying, well, in all other areas of economic policy, we're all good. We can continue with the liberal order. It obviously lacks credibility. Its boundaries are unilaterally defined and it's damaging to business confidence in any case. You know, watching Yellen go to China recently, it was like watching somebody with massive cognitive dissonance. I mean, she is, after all, a classic exponent of 90s globalism. And there she is in China having to defend the line, literally, that Washington favors growth for China in absolutely every area except for all of those which are better for strategic competition. And that's the position. Right. And in impeding chip development and AI couldn't possibly have anything to do with China's long run economic growth, even though the United States at the same time is doubling down on the view that it's absolutely essential to America's long run economic growth. It's just a fundamentally inconsistent position that lacks credibility. And she or her reputation is just being sacrificed again and again and again in these efforts to square a circle which doesn't square. Now, Washington, if you speak to the WTO leadership, they basically say the good news is they still pay their dues. Right? When America really doesn't care about a global institution, they stop paying their dues. Washington still pays its dues, but it openly scores. Its response on the steel, on the steel tariffs was just contemptuous. Um, what they favor are plurilateral coalitions of the willing. This is the, the, at the end of the Jake Sullivan Brookings speech, there is this efforts to map out what a multilateral uh, American policy would look like. But basically the funding is soft for those kind of initiatives and they avoid all of the tough issues that would be involved. And amongst the rich country partners in the anti-China coalition, it's all played out anyway. There's very little to be gained from free trade conversations with South Korea and Japan, other than if America introduces the IRA, which excludes them. And so then the Americans can make concessions. So there is this, 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 this sort of effort to craft a policy to fill a gap. This is the, the 70.5 billion foreign affairs fiscal appropriation for 2024. Most of this is UAS AID money. And the numbers, you know, they, there's a common theme here. Um, they're between one and $3 billion. And they're for a bunch of really grandiose projects. So we've got the infrastructure fund to make game-changing investments in the Indo-Pacific. We have the energy plan for development for half a billion people in developing countries to have clean energy. We have the Trump's International Development Finance Corporation with an extra allocation of $2 billion. Uh, we've got 1 billion to address the root causes of migration in Central America and 291 million for Haiti. On the one hand, what you see here is the kind of collective hive mind, the intelligence of American policymaking in action. They see all of the problems that everyone sees and they're trying to allocate money to all of them. But what you also see is the cap, the limit. Remember the two, $2 billion figure. Think about the statements they've been making recently on the World Bank, right? Go to G20, the American project is to restart and expand World Bank lending. The headline figure is 200 billion over 10 years, 200 billion, but that's the headline figure. How are they going to get there? America's contribution turns out is 25 billion. You're going to get to 200 by somehow leveraging private and partnerships with your allies around the world. That gets you at least arguably the FT reported to a hundred billion from the Europeans and the Americans and maybe some other G70 players. So we're talking in the three figure billions part. What are you going to ask Congress for? 2.25. So you're going to leverage that up to a pot, which will be a first risk cover on the American side of maybe 20 billion. Then you're going to do some other math and you're going to expect yourself going to get to 50 billion 
What we're seeing here is an administration that is very creatively playing every single register on its policy instrument, but is operating within a political framework in which the possible ask from Congress is 2.25 for the World Bank smuggled into an appropriation of 10 times that for Ukraine um, in, the, in the current Congress, and they've got no idea whether they can actually do this. So in conclusion, the three points they make about America's policy are it's massively constrained by political antagonism. It relies, as my friends on the critical development studies wing would say, again and again and again on the billions into trillions, blended finance, what Daniela Garbo calls the Wall Street consensus vision of development. In other words, public funds are limited, and so we have to wave the wand of securitization or of some sort of backstop mechanism to get us to big numbers, right? But the real issue, and if you confront the folks in the White House with this, they're absolutely conscious of this, is that it is an order of magnitude, at least short, of what everyone acknowledges is actually the required level of investment spend globally, right? This is the, this is, these are the estimates from Stern et al. You can multiply these, everyone in the room will be familiar with the scale of these. This is from Stern et al, Grantham Center, LSE, the stuff that was done for the latest COPs. These are the kind of spending figures. We know four trillion for the world for sustainable development in the emerging market and low income space, ex-China, it's one trillion, give or take 1.5, you can break it down in different ways. And when you confront folks in the White House with this fact, which they are plainly familiar with they just shrug they literally just shrug in a pained way and say well that that's what we can do when you look at how this is going to be done and this brings us back to our conversations i know that you were having earlier on this is the way in which uh stern et al figure what they call the big the grand match so this is going to be some kind of blended finance element they openly acknowledge the need for public financing then there's going to be a private flow there's going to be an expansion of multilateral lending concessional lending and aid that gets us into the ballpark. We all know that these in relation to global GDP are eminently manageable numbers. The question is how that you, how, what, what global GDP is for these purposes and how you coordinate and organize it. The salient fact that I was going to pick out from here is the domestic resource mobilization element, which is the big yellow bar on the left. And that goes directly to the heart of your conversations this morning, also about the fiscal apparatus, because ultimately this whole stack depends on the fiscal capacity of the low-income and developing countries to service this debt. And ultimately it depends on that element. And that brings us to that brings us to the structure of taxation and the range of possible options in terms of taxation. Um, because an element of it can be handled through risk sharing and de-risking in the West. An element of it can be done on a concessional basis. But in the long run, the vision clearly of all of this is global financial development, which implies the building of a stack, a tax apparatus, a domestic bond market, a local capital market. The, it's essentially a kind of global financial revolution argument, which dare not speak its name, but has that, has that kind of implication. And the foundation of that, as we know from European history, is taxation. If you've got the tax base, you can float a large public debt. And that will also be the test of our debt burden sustainability going forward in the United States, where we're looking as a result of this political impasse at deficits in the US, just to, again, to put this in your kind of set of parameters, all the estimates for American deficits run to 45% of GDP continuing for the next decade. So that is gonna be the big weight on the global bond market is absorbing all of that treasury issuance. Everything else will fit around it. One of the reasons why I think many people think interest rates are going to stay higher for longer is that is that. So what, I, what am I saying in conclusion? Um, polycrisis is not fate, right? It's, not, it's the product of known processes of growth and development that produce a funnel, an ever greater funnel of, of uncertainty, of drama, uh, and a constant shift of all the parameters, right? 
Um, we know, we at least have prepared reasonable estimates of what it will take to give everyone on this planet a fighting chance of dealing with it. That's what the Sustainable Development Goals are about. They're not a guarantee of anything, they're not a guarantee of equality, but they at least give folks a fighting chance. And they were promulgated at the same time as the Paris Agreement. It's astonishing the extent to which one is prioritised in the global policy agenda, you know, net zero targets for 2050 and whatever, and the Sustainable Development Goals exist in an entirely different space. Nothing that we're currently doing um, comes close to meeting the scale of the challenge. We're an order of magnitude off, broadly speaking. Um, none of the current agenda items do that. And that disconnect between the affirmation of growth, which we know drives the crisis, and the plans for the response, and the failure repeatedly to, in the face of known parameters, to rise to that it has necessarily to lead to, I think, a crisis of credibility at some point. That was the burden of the FT piece I did about Niger uh, a few weeks ago. It's just that why are we having this conversation about why we quote, quote, had lost the Sahel? It's like we weren't even breaking a sweat in terms of actually mobilizing material resource for, for development. So what are the options going forward from here? How does one formulate a kind of rational, critical uh, position? And this, this is my like final kind of gesture to your your question about the Bridgetown agenda. It seems to me there are like three ranges of policy options that we might think of pursuing. One is the overall structural realignment reform of the global economy. That's a 70s vision. That's that's off the agenda. There's a one-way traffic in that kind of vision from the 80s onwards. And we are not out of the neoliberal world from the point of view, if you look at the blended finance kind of vision, what Daniela calls the big green state is off the agenda, right? We heard it very loud and clear at Glasgow when the climate finance issue was so clearly formulated. Kerry said it, it's not coming from public budgets here or in China, there's some sort of public-private partnership. So then the smart money seems to be on very cleverly designed strategies to adjust and manipulate and improve and reallocate the existing pots of money in very fundamental ways. And that's how I see the Bridgetown agenda. It's like it's a powerfully successful effort to, at least at the level of rhetoric and of public attention globally, to figure out a better allocation of resources. But fundamentally, it's still operating within the framework of the given, right? Um, but it's, but, but, and, and, and to that extent, it seems to me to fit quite neatly with, you know, what the Biden folks are trying to do. Its scale is obviously larger and more cognizant of what's necessary. Um, and then I think short of that, you asked me about like what a Starmer government what a, you know, uh, should do in, in the UK. Clearly there is also, we, should, we shouldn't be defeatist. There, there is the strategy of establishing what you might call kind of islands of sanity, like do local things. And we could be talking about rather a large scale with the resources of substantial states, like those in Europe or those, uh, or those elsewhere in Asia. There are very substantial changes that can be made that, re that require a continuity of policy, and that's what you folks are all in the business of trying to devise. I do think that I'm, I'm open-minded on the issue of how you devise fiscal resiliency, but it is key because it's the most fungible pot of resources. It's the, most, it's the most powerful balance sheet. It's crucial to the range of options that you have. We just shouldn't be under an delusion about the fact that that by itself can offer us a systemic answer, it's always going to leave you in greater, larger or greater, lesser extent exposed to external risk, but people of goodwill are clearly all operating in those, in those two spaces of trying to work through the organizations that do exist and then trying to create spaces in which something like a rational policy you know, is possible. Anyway, sorry to end on such a, a general note. Thank you very much for your attention. I look forward to questions.
Thank you so much, Adam. It felt like a, a tsunami of uh, uh, ideas, emotions. I, I found myself alternating between hope on the green transition and uh, a doom. Um, but anyway, can we take some questions? I can see in the audience, I'm sure some question will come. Yes, we have, we'll take maybe three of also Philip and uh, Michael. Hi, uh, thank you, Adam. I, I, I think I share your sense of magnitude, the way that you go through describing the moment that we live in today, but I'm also struck by how much that is shaped by the fact that this is our presence now. Uh, we obviously can't tell the future, nor could anybody who was living in the past mm. uh, foresee the future. And so if I'm comparing my level of freak out right now to my potential level of freak out, had I lived in, say, 1923, mm. I'm not sure if I maybe then I would have said, well, there could be full communism within the next 10 years. I should be freaking out about that. And everything is going to change. The entire world is going to turn topsy-turvy. And who knows how that's going to end? We know now how it did end. And in, in that case, since you did a lot of work on the interwar period mm. and have spent so much time thinking about the different countries, different places who mm. were working creatively, who are trying to find their way into this new world, some of which failed spectacularly, some of which maybe we are still drawing inspiration from today. Can you yeah. uh, talk a little bit about if we were to look there, yeah. uh, what's there that is interesting? Yeah. Um, uh, hello, Adam. Um, brilliant as always. Um, I wanted to pick up on the one uh, bit of hope that you offered in the middle was about Africa. Um, very interesting remarks about Africa, I think. I think the population issue and that Africa has never had a population anything like this is, is very significant. Um, but you pointed out that Africa now has quite a lot of the things that uh, the West wants and indeed China wants. Um, and there are, the, William Ruto, the president of Kenya, is the person who's been articulating this most clearly. Um, with the advice of a bunch of people, I don't know whether you know them, the Climate Action Platform for Africa, um, organization on climate positive growth mm. basically saying that africa has the people and the natural resources mm. to support a global green transition not just its own green transition and part of that is mineral part of that is minerals um, but part of it is 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 nature and the possibility that the rest of the world might actually pay uh, to support some of the nature that will help sequester carbon and so on and he is rejecting in this He's not only suggesting this is an economic possibility, but he's rejecting the kind of victim mentality that Africa has had for so long in international affairs in which it has to get aid and so on. And he's got into trouble from other uh, African countries and LDCs and, uh, and so on for not sticking to the kind of agreed uh, G77 lines on, on this. And I just wondered whether you, um, you, uh, you can imagine or you can give us your sense of whether there is an African geopolitical strategy that fits into this picture that might change some of the dynamics or whether Africa is simply too weak, um, despite these possible hopes or ambitions to do that. Thank you. I think there was a question here. No, otherwise there is one here. And then maybe we'll leave you respond and we'll take another round yeah. of questions. I'm Michael Sachs from Wits University in South Africa. And it's maybe related to this isn't the most obvious 
uh, and simple impact on the prospect for development, the fact that the unipolar moment has passed mm. and Africa and others in the developing world now once again have the opportunity to uh, trade off against various global world powers. We might not like the way they use that opportunity, as you mentioned, mm. we lost the Sahel, but uh, the fact that that opportunity is there could be used uh, positively in the future. Mm. Oh, th these are great questions. Um, if I could address the, the first one first. Yeah, I, I, wrote, I wrote a book about the coming of the 20th century called Deluge that, was the, that started really with the way in which people viewed the 100 years ahead of them. And I, I think that they deserve more credit than you give them. Because if you read Hobson on imperialism, who is the great inspiration for Lenin on Hobson imperialism, one thing that Hobson says flat out in 1903 or 4 is that um, the future of China decides the future of the world. Full stop. Uh, there are various scenarios for China at that moment. Um, China could um, disintegrate. China could become um, the victim of other people's imperialism, in which case the country that, that imperializes China will emerge as the dominant one in East Asia. That's the Japanese scenario or the Russian scenario, or for that matter, the British and the American or the French. And then China could consolidate its powerful nation state, in which case the world of global power is forever changed. And all I'm saying is that contingency has now transpired and smart people 100 years ago could see it and they would look at our world and say, yeah, when that happens, it's it's game over or rather, finally, the great game really begins. I mean, my view is that sustainable development was thought in the 19 in the moment of the 2000s through 2010 through the lens of failed states, failed state paradigm, resource conflicts leading to violence. So the idea was if you'd got sustainable development all around, it would lead to pacification. If you actually think of sustainable development as like China's, it's actually just simply another word for multipolarity. When we have sustainable development all around, we will have eight and a half billion people organized in competent nation states at levels of GDP that make them at least as capable as Ethiopia or more. And then the world of geopolitics finally is upon us. That's when it gets interesting. That's when we actually have to do global politics and that is not within the unipolar framework, that is not within a previously League of Nations vision of European states imperializing with Japan as an outlier. We are, we are on the cusp of actually entering that period, and China is obviously, but India now following suit. This is the first time humanity has actually had at least half of it acting within the framework of extremely competent nation states. And it turns out that even though the prices of high level militarism have escalated, medium level militarism is cheap. Russia is fighting the Ukraine war on the budget on the, as, a, as a budget of 78% of GDP. That's, that's how much, they can go on doing this forever. Right? Turkey is intervening in a very major way in conflicts all around it with mid-level technology that's accessible to Turkey as a success, you know, in relative terms, successful EM market. We know how competent many of the players are emerging, regional powers emerging all around. So, so that would be my, this is even before we get to the environmental level. And at some level, we have to have a limit to growth, limits to growth framework. And at some level, we've got to call it and say, right, okay, Malthus was wrong. Right, okay, coal wasn't exhausted. But now, surely, well, our bet anyway, collectively, is this climate thing's for real. We actually think there is a carbon budget, in which case we now see it and we're up against it. And uh, heaven help us, like our best bet clearly is to take that absolutely real uh, for real, in which case 
are a problem unlike any of any previous group, right? This is actually a Malthusianism, that, or Malthus isn't even the right, it's, it's a problem we have with Malthus, right? But this is a recognition. For me, the two things go together. Insofar as we imagine geopolitics as essentially a kind of abstract game between n number of players, it kind of has a limitless and also repeatable quality. If you think of it actually as geopoliticians mean, in other words, as a map with a particular logic, as it fills up with competent players, the game changes. As the carbon budget gets exhausted, the game changes, right? It's not the same game as before because we're much closer to the limit, which is why China's explosive growth based on coal is so fundamental because it expires that carbon budget at a much more rapid pace. That's not a moral statement. That's just a consequential statement in terms of how the scope, for instance, for India or Africa's development now, because whatever they do, their development has in some sense to feed a different, different route. I, 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 these points about um, agency, I mean, I, I, I just, I'm under the impression of just having taught my colleague Howard French's book, um, Born in Blackness, which I recommend to everyone, because um, it, 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 it historically relativizes this moment where we go, oh, Africa has something we want, I think in, in somebody's phrase. Like, that, that was historically the norm. Like, there have been a few periods in which Africa was, had the, didn't have things that the West wanted. But from the, his argument, I think very compelling, is that from the early modern period onwards, it was actually the, the, both the discovery of real and the imaginary wealth of Africa followed then by the opening up of chattel slavery, which drove the entire dynamic of, of, of the West. So this is, not, this is not new, this configuration. But the point that he makes incredibly powerfully is that that, that, that position can empower but the question, of course, is who it empowers and on what terms and what consequences that empowering has within the domestic political and economic circumstances of Africa itself. Right. So there are a whole cluster of African states that grow extremely dynamically as providers to the chattel slavery system, because they'd always been in the slaving business. And all of a sudden, the slavery business was going to generate huge flows of revenue and, 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 and weapons and uh, uh, interesting commodities, not largely from Europe, but from India that could be imported. Right? And that became an incredibly toxic dynamic for African state formation, which leads to the disasters and tragedies of the 18th and 19th century and continues on East Africa all the way down to the end of the 19th century. So that is the crucial question. Like in, to what extent are African states capable of exploiting this moment of opportunity? And it is a hugely high risk situation to be in. It is an it is an a situation of opportunity, but it is also a situation of huge risk because internal factions, internal interests will coalesce around one strategy or the other. The choices can become existential. Like in many cases, neutrality would be a better place to be in. You don't have to go to the resource, resource curse simplicity to kind of recognize the risks that are at stake here. It's a, as, as the Germans would say, a, a testing, a, a tearing test, right? Can your polity cohere if it wants to exploit these kind of advantages? And after all, the Cold War is not exactly a promising example of how this played out in state after state after state in Africa, right? These, these interventions, and Wagner is, that the West has made so much fuss out of is kind of pale beer. I mean, what strikes me more, maybe there are people in the room who can really feel it, is the, is the kind of ideological emptiness of this wave of coups that have swept across the Sahel. Like, what are they actually about? Like, it's very unclear. These are very unlike the high stakes ideological battles of the 60s through the 80s in post-colonial Africa. It's not obvious. They seem to me to fit into this exhaustion paradigm 
where it's like the deja coup, like you know, we've kind of been here before. And, and of course, it's not true. That too is a trope, right? It's not true that everyone, you know, the, the coups are not a generality of experience. They're, they're specific logics. But so far, very few of them seem to have like a clear, compelling ideological political purpose that would betoken why that would be interesting is it would betoken a state building project. It would betoken an elite that actually had some self-confidence, that had substantial societal backing, that was driving in a particular direction. And that, for better or worse, is, is the only thing that will turn these gambles into really viable projects. And Many of those trade-offs are going to be really dirty. The cases I know best are all European, but the European states that try to play this kind of game often ended up in authoritarian solutions because the authorities need to repress the dissenting views within the state that contest the choices that you're making globally, the alliances that you enter into, right? So you're trying to attract a Chinese bidder. This, uh, this mobilizes nationalist opposition people in the prevailing regime that want to do the Chinese deal end up repressing the opposition. You see this in Serbia right now in Europe, right? You saw that in the interwar period. These kind of logics are very powerful. So it certainly changes the pressure, but there isn't much in the historical record in general or of Africa in particular that leads one to be per se optimistic. You have to be a very competent state to play this game to the advantage of anything but small elites. And, and that is the challenge. That doesn't foreclose the option, but I would have thought that is the challenge for mass political and for democratic politics in, in Africa today is to formulate a foreign policy and a foreign economic policy that does indeed take advantage of the end of unipolarity in a productive way. And that, that, that's a huge, I don't think even Europe right now, I don't trust the German political system to digest the implications of multipolarity. And I say that laughingly because I know that system reasonably well, and it is undoubtedly a sophisticated one. But they seem to me, I give this talk about the war crisis in Germany because I don't think people in Berlin understand how flipping dangerous this is. And, and they are in the loop. They are privileged players, they have resource, and I don't think they understand how dangerous this is. And how far for progressive and left-wing politics everywhere in the world, and in Europe as well, the question of peace is being posed now. It's an old question, it was one that was very dangerous for the left in the 1980s, but kind of back in that space now. So, see what I mean? Generalizing from that to the specific challenges of, of, of much more fragile states, not, it, it's, it's quite, quite unclear how this works out. More questions? Were... Yes, please. Thank you very much. That was a very interesting. So my question has to do with, uh, well, you could argue that EU and US should just let China build the infrastructure in Africa and not try to compete in that and really focus on their relative strength which is to improve education in Africa and what is preventing essentially achieving improvement in education similar to what happened in China in the 70s, 80s, when China was as poor as, as, as many African countries at the time. Yes, cool. <laughs> the questions that get asked in these discussions are so mind-blowing. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's one over here. Yeah, yeah. Let's take. Thank you. Rashad Amra from Fitz University as well. Um, this is a room primarily made up of policymakers and people involved in policy. And uh, we talk a lot about orthodoxy, and there's a lot of groupthink over here. And especially emerging from you know, post Bretton Woods and Washington Consensus, and then changes to Washington Consensus have been very much on the margin. 
Um, but will there still be, in a new world, um, a consensus or best practice, given that the underlying institutions and the powers behind that consensus or um, advocating uh, those best practices cease to be, uh, it becomes a lot more anarchic where the BRICS uh, grouping uh, with the new entrance doesn't seem to have any orthodoxy besides growth. So mm. skirting uh, Geneva, skirting uh, the Human Rights Declaration, skirting, not even caring too much about WTO, or any of these that have emerged post-Washington uh, consensus. So does it become very much the uh, law of the jungle uh, and then so then you, you notice even the Germans aren't able to navigate the consequences or the implications of, of uh, the new world. So what is then the implication for the ODI, for the World Bank, for the IMF and, uh, and the rest of us here? Thank you. Thank you. We'll have one here and Yamini, and then we'll take responses. Yeah, I, I actually, so to, uh, Adam, at the point I was thinking whether we should all pack out of West Africa. Well, well, at a point, yeah. when I saw the, the map of uh, the, how inhabitants some part of the world would be in Africa, uh, especially uh, in, uh, in the next, seven, I mean, by 2070, yeah. I started thinking whether I should pack out of West Africa yeah. and move away because the, the whole of West Africa was, is entirely black. Yes. black. Yeah. But my question is, shouldn't uh, polar crisis be an African uh, AU agenda? Uh, for the heads of states to start discussing and how do you think hmm. this can improve the African continental free trade area that we've all been talking about that uh, with these opportunities that we have can we leverage on the availability of raw materials in Africa and have a common front to improve the condition as it is. Question here. So it's, it's actually he articulated my question better than I would have. <laughs> but but let, let me push that a little bit. I, you know, so 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 in in this multipolar world where multiple actors are being able to play uh, play the play in the big boys club, so to speak, uh, it's also being played very much from the internal perspective of individual national interest. Mm. And it is multiplicities of national interests that seem to be jostling with one another, mm. um, which in the old world always existed too, except that you had one big bully that was able to, you know, put everybody, uh, get everyone in line. And as you, you know, rightly pointed out, the, the, the challenges, the domestic challenges in the United States are significant. And in fact, they are not unknown to the rest of the world at one level, which is why everybody is now sort of pushing out in their own national interest uh, as a way of, uh, of you know, grabbing the moment, so to speak. So the bigger question is, is the crisis of climate enough to create a normative framework that can be disciplining? Otherwise, how are we going to evolve a disciplined global norm? And I ask this question also from the perspective of this, you know, there's a creature called the global south, which I still haven't quite figured out what it means. Uh, but it's a phrase that we use all the time and India has adopted it big time uh, in, the, in the context of G22. And now we are all coming together as, you know, leaders of the global south. And there's new jostling around whether it's China who's leading the global south or India who's leading the global south. But, you know, it's this coming together of, of, uh, of, a, of a new formation with absolutely no normative basis on which 
this global south agenda is to be pursued so again how do you you know are we just going to see lots of chaos minus that global norm and it, you know just your thoughts on that hmm. well what a range of questions um um, um it, it's clearly uh, europe need, europe and africa need to be partners right because if they're not the the, the it's a very grim outlook indeed. That, I think that's the one thing that we can clearly say um, because the flow of migration is real. Um, it makes sense, it's logical. Um, it's not just desperation that drives people. The people who are making that gamble, risking their lives, are kind of, they're understanding something about the world, which and that's the tragedy in a sense. They're acting in, in, in not just locally, but macroscopically rational way. Europe needs their labor. Um, and they make a contribution anyway, and so, and, but they're caught in a system that tragically refuses that that logic and refuses to organize it in a civilized way that would maximize opportunities and, and allow resources, you were saying, education to flow both ways. I mean, we were talking about this earlier on, the, 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 the agony of the current moment is that these things which we describe as big in relation to the scale of the problem and the scale of global resource, a global GDP of 100 trillion a year are not big. They're not, they're not big. This problem of organizing of migrant labor and, and the flow that will be necessary by historical standards is, is not insurmountable. And it's impossible to, to, you know, to render it that way. And, 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 yet, and yet, when we say all of this, can we really be optimistic about the prospects for that deal, which is obviously strategically essential for both sides? Um, and, and, and that, and if you think about, say, 2017, you know, the, the Merkel government after the shock of 2015, 2016 has the right idea. They, they, they understand. I mean, Merkel truly was at that level. Everyone says she was not visionary. She actually understood globalization probably better and more profoundly than any European politician ever before her. She understood that there needed to be a strategy for, 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 for Europe in Africa, because otherwise you were constantly trying to, you know, she was a realist too. She would do the deal with Erdogan. But there needed to be a, a, a plan and a strategy. And so there is the German led Marshall Plan, not for but with Africa, which is launched, God help us, into the spring of 2017 and the Trump administration. And, and that's one thing that kills it. And the other thing that kills it is the German finance ministry, because the German Marshall Plan with Africa was a public private partnership with an absolute minimal amount of rebadging of existing funds, which was supposed to be leveraged up and would end you up with, you know, I think they thought it would be 150 billion over some long time frame. And you're looking at Nigeria, sorry, or Ghana, and just going, folks, you're not on the right, you're not in the planet, right? We're talking about large scale problems. Um, and that's where I, this is where for me, this like this sense of like, uh, kind of uh, not panic exactly, but like real fear, not fear again, but just apprehension. Because the, the logic is so transparent, that the, the need is so transparent, the means are minimal, the outcomes will be win-win. And yet I'm absolutely, and I don't see how anyone in the room will be confident that we're going to get to that kind of scale. We invoke the Marshall Plan, because it's sort of our comfort blanket of like big policy that went right at a crucial moment and like at least once right it really did um and even there like you know one could be revisionist about it but nevertheless and but and that that for me is the sort of couldn't agree with you more that is clearly what needs to happen just don't i just am not persuaded that necessarily would a similar kind of response to your point about education um and of course the contrasting case is india 
Like when the World Bank went into China in the early 1980s, they just couldn't understand the planet they were on because this was a country with a measured GDP per capita very similar to India's. And yet it ticked all the boxes on the basic development agenda. It ticked the boxes on health. It ticked the boxes on basic education. It had done everything right. And hey, presto, when you, then you did the minimal amount of liberalization, you did in fact get very rapid market-driven growth. And, and, and the problem, of course, is if you ask what the conditions are for the possibility of the realization of that program in China, I'm not even going to cite Chinese historians. I'll just talk. I'll just cite Indian colleagues that I spoke to on a visit that Yamini and CPI made possible. And with that, a few, maybe one beer into the evening, people will say, well, there's, you know, we never had a cultural revolution. We never had a cultural revolution. And these are not subaltern studies, radicals from the 1970s talking, for whom that was always the point. Right? This is, this is, this is, our people, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, so like that, that the the thing which you're describing, which is clearly the 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 central route, right? Grassroots health, grassroots education. Insofar as we have a kind of standard policy set, that's clearly the way to go. The problem in that case is that's not a small fix; that's a massive societal transformation. That because that goes into the heart of how people understand their children and notably their girl children, how they fit into visions of their future. Like the, the this is and, and in the same level, you could say that in the migration policy, for instance, again, it's fundamentally a question of whether white people can live in peace with black people in la, on a large scale in uh, in Europe, notably if those people are of Muslim heritage. Right. That's that's kind of the fundamental deep, deep resistance that lies behind, you know, the difficulty. We've seen the difference with Ukraine. Like we like it's just an undeniable natural experiment of, of really dramatic implication. So the the option is there. This isn't this isn't fatalistic. This isn't to say that that division of labor is not a good division of labor. The one you propose, by all means, let the Chinese do infrastructure and let the Europeans work on education. That doesn't seem like a bad division. The question from the Chinese side is whether they're still doing it. Like if you look at the net flow numbers, they're they're at zero or even negative now. That story is over. That's an old story. I mean, right now, the ambition should be, in fact, to enroll the Chinese um, in a new phase of, of expansion to provide conditions in which they can do it safely. But of course, the opposite is what we're trying to do. We're trying to use two billion dollars here, there or everywhere else to outcompete the Chinese in a space. So the United States and the West in its current configuration came even close, two orders of magnitude close to actually filling that space. You define the Indo-Pacific and then you think you can fill it with two and a half billion dollars. It's a joke. Right? It's an absurd misunderstanding of the scale of the development issues of Southeast Asia, for instance. Like it's, it's just, it's, it's, um, so this for me has this weird placeholder function. There's an awful lot of politics going down right now, which you can read from, say, the critical perspective as grand visions of neoliberal policy in its death throes. I'm transitioning to the question from over here. Like, but on the other hand, it also just has this spectral kind of, it's as though we're box ticking. We need a policy for that. We're going to string it together like this. This is how we're going to make it work. I read that on the American side very much as the effort by this frankly traumatized liberal elite to keep the train, you know, to keep the, the truck on the road. And and heaven knows that's the only option and, and you know, all power to them. But there's a there's a way in which they need a quick fix more than or they need a fix more than actually the reality of a solution. So this is just, so it's just kind of symptomatic that this the, the, the ubiquity of references to Swiss army knife policies uh, is telling in this respect, because obviously Swiss army knives are very clever things. But if you ever, 
ever face a major emergency with a Swiss army knife, <laughs> you're in trouble. If that's what you're left with, right? I mean, you know, Godspeed. Um, and that is the IRA is a Swiss army knife, literally in that sense, I think. It's like it's this intensely clever way of packing everything, including the future of American democracy, into, no, literally, that is its main focus. That's what they care about most. Uh, and so this comes to this ideological point, like what actually has broken and what is emerging. I mean, amongst all of the Biden economics chutzpah, the most dramatic is no doubt the Jake Sullivan moment where he says to Brookings, and some people call this a new Washington consensus, you know, on the back of a vice president's vote in the Senate, they get this thing passed and they call it a new Washington consensus. It's absolutely hilarious. I mean, it really, it's just spinning into space, right? Um, clearly within the think tank world, amongst folks like us, we've all been discussing little else about the new industrial policy and everything else. And they've won the argument and everyone's persuaded. But the fundamental difference is that their project does not have behind it a powerfully packed coalition of social and economic interests and a clear vision of or a realizable vision like the original Washington consensus did. Right? Um, the, the, in, in the 90s, you could do NAFTA on the back of a bipartisan coalition. You could do China's WTO accession on the back of a bipartisan coalition in, in Washington. Obviously, it's easier for Republicans to mobilize those because Democrats will actually vote on an issue rather than the Republicans who just hardline now. But nevertheless, that's all gone. The very last thing they have is a consensus on anything. Insofar as there's a consensus, it would be a hard line on China. But even that has different edges, right? And the and the and the and the this goes to this issue of national interest. Like the harder edge Republicans, the the, the the committee to watch is the House Committee on whatever it's called on China. It isn't called that, but countering the influence of the CCP. Because they are posing the question, Yamini, that you're talking about in a really subversive and kind of aggressive way, because it's true that now people are using this term national interest to to mobilize around, but we all know that's just an empty vessel. I mean, national interest is what I happen on any given day to say it is for my purposes for pursuing whatever because there's no there's no really I mean, maybe in a war when you're facing a totalitarian invader and Poland had a national interest in resisting Nazi occupation, the Soviet Union did too. That that that's a reasonable statement. But America has a national interest in humbling and crippling the development of Chinese tech at the risk of potential confrontation and escalation towards a war with Taiwan. Europeans, when asked the question of whether they would solidarize with America in a war over Taiwan, overwhelmingly in opinion polling done by the ECFR, uh, rejected that proposition. No, they're not interested in it. They don't know. So, so, and what the what this what this House committee is doing is exposing the deep interests of a whole range of very important strategically significant American business groups in China and their continued interest in it. And they will, of course, all merrily argue these are American jobs, American shareholders. This is good for the American economy. Remember, like 10 years ago, we all agreed on this. Um, and that so that is that is is really what I see is, is, is that we've we've jumped the national interest topic into the policy frame. And it's a crazy hot potato that on the one hand, everyone wants to hold, and on the other hand, no one wants to It's kind of radioactive, right? It's very, very unstable. Brexit, after all, living in this country, you know, like Brexit was in Britain's national interest. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, no, and that's how it was justified. Like, in, and, and, and maybe they had a case, but it's proved incredibly difficult to actually, to, to actually make, it, make, it, make it work. Now, the, the, the the question about ideology. I mean, you can guess like where I would probably go with this from these 
these other answers, which is that I don't yet see the coalescence of anything remotely like the um, Washington consensus. Um, that may have something to do with the difficulty of defining what national interest is. If we've defined national interest as the hardcore of the new frame, it's incredibly, I mean, think of India. I mean, it turns out that the national interest of India is to rename India. <laughs> like literally give it a new name. Like, and thereby a whole new conception of what it is, right? Um, so, so it doesn't. It's 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 incredibly incredibly unstable. Um, and 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 I think we'll have a clear idea if and when, like a new, as you were saying, a new coalition of forces emerges. And I, I think, I mean, the Biden people to give them their due, they have a vision which is that within buried within America's fraught political economy. There is in fact a green modernization coalition like the one that you can see in Europe, like the one you can see around Adani and the green energy revolution in India that's waiting to happen. And so the project of the Biden people is to articulate that and build a social model around it and revive. And at that point, I think you could say, okay, now we've got something that kind of works. The CCP has a kind of strategy of that type, I think, right? You deliver a certain sort of consumer benefit constrained by the very high uh, savings rate, you develop growth, you deliver for heaven's sake, like uh, a private property ownership to the overwhelming majority of society in the space of 30 years, like that's a societal project of transformation, right? And they're now having to, to, to unwind the consequences of that in financial terms. We are some way away, I think, from the coalition, the coalescence of that kind of form. And my left-wing friends would say, well, yes, and for all of the, all of the, all of the churn around this, in the end, within the within the actual practice of neoliberalism in the united states it was a coalition of business interests in the american state that always dominated the least principled least rule following neoliberal player was always the united states the the people who really drank the kool-aid with the europeans the eu is like the full monty right they really committed with the with the limitations on state aid with the you know in 2019 the commission stopped the merger of siemens and alstom you know, it's like in the in the present world, an unfathomable but thoroughly principled down the line, it has real consequences. Cell phones are much cheaper in Europe than anywhere else, in, better than in the United States. Airline travel's dirt cheap as well, right? So it, it's a real political economy, but it was never the American model anyway, right? It was called the Washington Consensus for a reason. They decided what it was, and they called the shots, and they played by it. And this reading of power is 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 really essential. And. And furthermore, if you look into the architecture of all of these new industrial policy measures, as Daniela Garbo has you know, shown this with real force, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's basically the same old wine in new bottles, right? It's the same old mechanisms organized around the same players because, because there has been no change in the underlying political economy, right? But the neoliberalism was founded on a dramatic shift in the balance of power, freeing of finance to an extent we hadn't seen since the 1930s. None of that, none of that is active in the current moment. And so in the end, it remains true that the fiscal capacity of the state is highly limited. So you use public-private partnership to compensate for that. Like there's um there's a kind of continuity there that we have to we have to reckon with. Um, but the, the situation, I think, is more precarious, as I was trying to highlight in the American case, than it is transformed so far. We're in this sort of situation of 
really extreme. And with regard to political economy, how much difference would a Trump administration make? Well, it would probably try and kill the IRA. But and I mean, it would be even more aggressive on trade. It would be even more disruptive in international institutions. But at this point, the Biden administration is in any case a kind of rationalized, more intellectualized, more sophisticated version of the of Trump of Trump's of Trump's policy, you could say. And so to that extent, a reverse and back, it will be hugely, it will be hugely um, destabilizing for, for, but in terms of your question about, econ it will be hugely destabilizing for global politics and for the American constitution, but in terms of your question about economic ideology and political economy, I'm not sure how much difference it would end up making. Um, we have one question, there is one question online. There was somebody here that raised their hand. Yes. Tim, so, um, yes, please. Thank you very much. Uh, I must say I've been more educated, but I have fears. Let me be specific with the fear. You ended your presentation by saying we should allow the islands, particularly so from Africa, I'm from Africa, or the developing country to build sanity competency and consistency yeah. from your presentation i don't hear any recommendation from you on how these small islands in the developing countries can build those three competencies you are talking about and related to that what do you see the role of the international agencies and the regional organizations helping those small islands grow into sanity integrity independence consistency and competency thank you very much thank yeah. you very much there is a question online from ratin roy who unfortunately couldn't be here so he quoted you this morning and quotes uh, again yourself well kinnant uh if you can do it then you can afford it. We know the scale of the green and inequality challenges, but are we able to, or do we know how to address them, if not fully, in substantial measure? And I think that comes a little bit around Yamini's idea whether we could um, oh, yes. mobilize ourselves yeah, around, around the, the, the climate. climate. Yeah. Uh, and then Tim, yes. Hi, I'm Tim uh, Williamson from the World Bank, and at the bank we've been doing some work on the future of government. Uh, it's a grand title, uh, but and one of the and we sort of looked back and we we ended up with a with a fairly optimistic view that you know looking back governments have have together managed to to, to address the thus far the, the a lot of the global crises that uh, that that they. Uh, uh that they faced and and this is a you know this is a, a challenge and it requires a degree of, of of collective action both at the macro level but also within countries themselves and and depending on the context and the nature of challenges you know uh, the the crises are different but but it requires requires a degree of a degree of of sort of joint joint working to solve those problems but i and so so you know, I, I am an optimist, but but uh, but but one of the my sort of uh, question to you, having listened to you, and you sort of say, and I think all the solutions are out there, and there's a way of doing this, but really, do things have to get a lot worse before they get better? Mm. 
Um, God, such a lot of... Um, so we've got the Keynes question, we have the outstanding Yamini question, we have the, the question I can't answer. Uh, um, um, so the competence are like how to do it yeah. question, and then uh, we have the, does it have, do things have to get worse? Um, because when they get worse, presumably there's some sort of logic which says that when faced with crisis, people act. Um, so there's a huge gulf between my conf my confidence in responding to this question and my my real um, trepidation in trying to respond to the totally fair question from from the back here. Um, I, I genuinely don't think I should venture in a tech because the question you're asking is is the question essentially the question of development, right? Of, 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 of political and economic and social development, and I and I. And you folks in the room here are the people who are, who have competent and expertise and 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 uh, devoted your lives to that issue, um, and and that that makes me that feel feel uh, out of my depth to be honest uh, to actually specifically answer your question, okay? um, in, and in a prospective and normative way. But maybe one point I could make, which might um, which isn't entirely evasive, would be to say something along the lines of. Um, you know, in a room of, of technocrats and of policymakers, the thing in this kind of community that we, and I would count myself in that kind of group as a kind of, you know, um, an external observer of that process, the thing we tend to us to underestimate is the significance of politics per se, politics. So the combination of the mobilization of popular participation, the shaping of discourse, uh, the matter of leadership, the um, the way in which not to get into a kind of moralistic discourse about you know clean government and corruption, but the way in which the flow of resources is managed within the elite and between the elite and broader society, we underestimate the 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 the, the political. In part, we underestimate the political because it's so damn contingent, and it's so damn it's so particular, and it's so case by case, and it's. And, and there's no single formula that lies there. The, the, the general point I'm making is just that without that, it seems almost impossible to imagine substantial progress on any of the big metrics, any of the big axes of advance that we're talking about. And any advance that you do make, absent the development of a complex, at least minimally pluralistic, open political system is always going to be fragile. It's always going to be contingent. You got lucky once, right? But you don't really have any resilience in the system. And that that would be like the one, it's not an answer to your question. It's saying that this is one of the dimensions of development that seem to me to be essential. And, and I say this in part also as a historian because because of its contingency, right? Certain projects will work. There are certain moments where decisions will differentiate between societies which make systematic progress on certain dimensions and others and others that and others that don't. And I, I know that's at some level a cop out, but but um I've I've just been I've just been teaching a class literally at, uh, 90 minutes ago about about German history and Germany German development and and there's such a temptation in thinking about the disasters that that country went through in the early 20th century to think of them as determined by broad socioeconomic factors and to discount the significance of political choice for better and worse at key moments. The foundation of the state in part of a Bismarckian conservative strategy in the 1870s, the choices of political elites in the Weimar Republic. 
And those can be explained in various ways, but we end up in a kind of Tolstoyan regress where we have to account for both the general and the particular. And um, what I came away from rethinking the history of the country that I know best is that in the end, you can't escape the significance of, of, um, of political choice. It's kind of the Lee Kuan Yew kind of Singaporean case. Um, and that is not that that's a kind of it's 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 a hopeless answer from the point of view of social science because it's so contingent that it's very difficult I think to avoid. There are certain lessons that can follow from that, which are the developmental implications of free institutions of independent judiciaries, a multiplicity and plurality of institutions that create checks and balances would seem to be uh, the way to go. So anything which develops a check and balance logic would seem to be a, a, a key step in the in the right direction. Um, I, I'm much more confident in in responding at the level of like macroeconomic policy to the to the to your point from um, I think it's undeniable that in the responses to the 2008 crisis, the Eurozone crisis, the 2020 crisis, there has been policy learning. Absolutely. Um, absolutely undeniable that that's the case it would be crazy to tell the story any other way um and um i'm unpersuaded though by the logic that says we really need a big disaster to act at scale um and furthermore i'm just not sure that we can afford disasters on the scale that are coming down the pike and that is a lesson I don't mean to cast aspersions, but it's much easier said from the position of privilege that we all inhabit from than from the position of the people who will actually suffer the crisis, you know, in its extreme form. That, that to, to, to my mind, that's not a tenable position, right? So I don't derive any optimism from that. That makes me very pessimistic. If that if that is the conclusion of the study, we're in we're in real trouble. Um, there's a, a hand which went up immediately. Do you want to you want to pile in on this? Is everybody else going on the <laughs> but but was that was that triggered by what I just said? Because if it was, we can no, no. I was just thinking if I have a an, right. I mean, um, so I was wondering, um, Collier, because you were talking about the coups, the coup yeah, d'état yeah, in the Sahel, yeah, yeah. and Collier proposed uh, European security guarantees towards okay. democratically elected yeah. governments. I was wondering what's your opinion on that. Okay, Thanks so like, we can fold that into the kind of learning process. There are clearly ways in which powerful states might want to secure uh, other states against against risks. Um, the problem, of course, is what's a European security guarantee worth in a zone in which Europe has been trying to organize and guarantee security for over a decade with rather with, with, with inadequate results. If it was a security guarantee of a large scale, that, that might be a, an answer, right? If it was, was really large scale, like the early phase of the French intervention, but over the long run, that hasn't proved to be a satisfactory answer. A backstop, various backstop mechanisms, deep-pocketed backstop mechanisms, I think, are something we've learned are crucial, which is why the nexus between central banks and treasuries is, is crucial, right? Maintaining a powerful nexus between a central bank and a treasury is the, is, the, is the crucial thing. And, you know, I gather that the British example of last year has been much in debate to me. That's not a demonstration of what goes wrong when you have crazy policy. That's the demonstration of what goes wrong when you no longer have that nexus between the central bank and the treasury operating. Because as soon as you put that back in place, the problem goes away. 
in, as the British case demonstrates, right? So the, now, of course, you can say over the long run, that's toxic because then people start gaming the system, but that's then a matter of institution building, transparency, accountability to regulate that balance. The crisis was imminently avoidable. It need never have happened. It was a choice to let it happen. It's not the first time the Bank of England has played that kind of game in its long history. So, um, the, but, the, but the function of a backstop, right, is a really important thing that I think policy has learned. The, the Fed did this in 2020, right? announcing that it would it would buy private debt on a large scale a huge transgression of conventional boundaries never actually had to do it right? never had to do it on any scale right because once you make the promise you realize the mechanism to take your point confidence restored security is re-established it's the promise that that means that the predators the the bond vigilantes never in, in in or in other words the insurgents in a central african situation never get going because they know at some point they'll face retribution of a large scale. I don't think that's a bad way of thinking about the kind of contingent policy we're going to need going forward. And, and so a kind of, uh, uh, to go to the orthodoxy problem, a minimum of orthodoxy, a maximum of pragmatism, a maximum mobilization of standing reserves of capacity to act. Some balance like this is as good as we've got, right? It's not, it's not a guarantee of anything, but it's, uh, it's, as, it's as good as, as, as we've got. I, I do, I'll just recur to the to Yamini's point about climate, because it, because it's such an it's such an extraordinary thing, right? That's happened in which climate has moved from being the 1990s South on North mud bath like slanging match of of of, of the 90s to the heartbreak of Copenhagen and the realization that you know there was no possible deal to happy clappy Paris 2015. We've like we've kind of agreed. And now it's like the last thread of sanity in a global system in which we hope the climate problem will yield norms that allow us to organize a collective system that is otherwise fraying. It's really, it's really an astonishing trajectory. Yes. And, um, and um, I don't think it's by accident. I think there are other ecological problems which are much more, still much more dangerous in a way than cl climate's become sort of it's literally become the thing that we think we can maybe organize a collective human interest around. And I'm, I'm very skeptical that that's any longer really possible to any extent, not because the logic isn't totally sound, obviously. Um, and in fact, it's the most dramatic demonstration of the broader transition, your point about multipolarity, right? The, the climate is the space in which the West discovers for the first time, I think, in modern history, that its fate is absolutely not in its own hand. Right? The, 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 the G7 between them account for less emissions than China on its own. But the United States is less than, like, 13% of global compared to 31% of China. Like, nothing America can do any longer shapes by itself the outcome here. Right? So it is the ultimate global political problem, because it's also true that China, of course, can't by itself achieve decarbonization, because it's only 31% of the problem. So. And, and and my my sense is that from that emerges not necessarily a kind of solid set of norms, but surely what we're basically gambling on is that rivalrous national processes unleash a technological logic which is so persuasive by itself that that this that this just in a depoliticized way in the end works its way through. And and but I'm I'm literally I'm doing the the, the the 
the the ironies here are so there's so many of them and i'll just i'll just end on this but the you know this argument it's this argument that we can't afford to do geopolitics now because the climate problem supervenes like how on earth can we be talking about how on earth could we be talking about ukraine and war and confrontation whereas the climate problem collectively speaking is the result of the multipolarity that drives the, the process right so they're not they're, they're they're two sides of the same coin that as collectively a planet with our collective population mobilizes to the level we currently do simultaneously we reach the boundary of this this is my answer to you right we simultaneously reach the boundary of the environmental envelope and the geopolitical game rises to a entirely new level and unless we embrace that and stop kind of i feel there's like this 1990s we kind of want the 1990s unipolar moment back in which we can somehow all agree which is how the climate problem was originally framed back then right and and we're just not we're not in that space the real climate problem is one of mobilize development all around right at least for half of humanity on a really large scale and that's what's blowing us towards this dramatic conclusion um so i don't see it, it can't be a kind of i don't think a universal norm thing is going to work it's got to be something more bargained or de facto depoliticized by virtue of the fact that it's just technology that's going to get us there maybe it's not a bad way to to finish on something that is a little bit uh, perhaps more optimistic uh thank you so much adam we well, heard you. clearly a failure of of scale so the new uh, uh, the international economic order is a little bit of a dire state but there are pockets of hope and also what i would take away is that even if there is a failure of scale doesn't mean that nothing can be done and there are those small <laughs> island of um, rational and actually uh, good i also hear that um, tax base remain uh, fundamental so i think it's a very solid basis for for us to go and get a drink uh, and uh, enjoy ourselves but also to come tomorrow for for the second part of uh, of this conference but let me uh, please join me to thank you very much